We have been just absolutely blessed. Children, thank you so much. Karen, thank you so much for the wonderful, yes, just, oh. Precious, just really just, I, I just, I love seeing children up front. Totally reckless abandon. They don't care who's watching or doing anything. They're just up there singing. It's just, I love it, I love it, I love it. All right. The Gospel of John starts with, in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing, nothing was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. His life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness can never extinguish it. The light shines in the darkness. And no matter how hard it tries, the darkness can never extinguish it. Amen? I want you to imagine, if you will, a court scene. You, sitting here, are a member of one of the most celebrated juries in history. You've been handpicked by the defense and the prosecution under the direction of sophisticated consulting firms. The judge's final instructions are still fresh in your mind as you sit to hear the closing, or rather, I'm sorry, the opening remarks on each side. And like any trial, you are not asked to make a decision based on absolute certainty, but rather consider only the evidence that would convince you beyond a reasonable doubt. The defendant's name is God. The trial is to decide whether he is a pretender or he really is God. Is he truly what he declares to be love? And you get to decide as the trial goes on. The prosecuting attorney is ready to make his opening statement. He is a handsome man and quite convincing. His rhetorical skills are just absolutely polished. And he has you and the rest of us totally spellbound. And he begins, if God truly, if this man truly is God, and he truly is love, then let me ask you a question, he says. He says, if it's so, why does he allow the killing of hundreds of innocent people by gunmen in concerts in Manchester Arena, England, in Las Vegas shooting, school shootings, killing innocent young lives and 
Parkland, Florida, Connecticut, San, Bernard, San Bernardino, California, Kentucky, Texas, Ohio, New Mexico, and I can go on. If God really does exist, why are even in his churches, those who supposedly follow him, he can't even protect his own people. He says this with a bit of a smirk, such as in Sutherland, Texas, killing 26 individuals. If God really was love, why does he unleash hurricanes like Harvey and Irma and Maria, destroying thousands of lives and devastating thousands of homes and businesses in Texas, the Caribbean, Florida, and Puerto Rico? Why does he cause earthquakes all over the earth, including the one in Mexico City, killing more than 150 people and destroying dozens of homes and buildings? I mean, who is this God? How can anyone believe in this God? And what are the devastating fires destroying so much in California, in Oregon, in Washington, in Montana, in Idaho? And I can go on and on, acts of terrorism in the name of God, in England, in New York, in France, in Belgium. How could there be a God? What of the Rohingya genocide? And the 276 girls that just recently been kidnapped by, by Boko Haram. Come on. What of hate crimes and racism? Injustice, all allowed to go unchecked by this pretender. And I'm just talking about the global things that happened just last year, in the beginning of this year. We're not even talking about the injustices. Often in the name of God that have happened throughout all of history, I mean, seriously, only a fool can believe that there is a God. What of the personal tragedies? How come cancer eats us from within and war and famine from without? If he is real and he is good, why does he not answer all of our prayers? I know there are some in here that have prayed and never had their prayer answered. And anything that was, was probably just coincidence. How come we can't agree even on what he's, what he's like? Is he the exacting God of the Muslim? Is he the nothingness of the Buddhist? Is he the loving God of the Christian? Come on. And why are there over 300 different Christian denominations? You guys can't even get along. How can anyone possibly know who's right or wrong? Why are children born and die hungry? Why are devout people even buried 
poor, good people stricken by tragedy and loss. If God can't control the weather, if he cannot control the elements or our, of our society, how can he really be God? Your Honor, for the next few days in this court, I will be proving that God is not real, that he is a pretender. A look of confidence as he scans the jurors right into your eyes. And he looks at you and he says, do any of you, any of you really truly believe in God? He knows the tragic accidents that have happened. He knows of the financial burden that you're under. He knows of the relational bankruptcy that you are experiencing. And it's almost as if he could see right through you. And he says, really, do you really believe this? If God is real, why is it taking him so long to convince us? And why is there so much darkness if he is the light? If this being truly is God, and then he walks up to the defendant, he says, why don't you just strike me dead right now? Come on. Let's see how powerful you are. And he waits a few seconds and he says, you see? He can't even do that. Come on now. He says, your honor, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I will sit down right now because I think I've already made my case. And he does. You sit mesmerized as the defense attorney stands. He's a little chubby. He's got a New York accent. <laughs> and he proceeds. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, 29 years ago, I entered into an experience that I must say has changed the course of my life drastically and permanently. I became a daddy. I remember holding this little girl in my arms 29 years ago in the delivery room. I was so distraught that I was asking for the doctor when circumcision would need to be done. <laughs> he just looked at me and laughed. I was awestruck by the overwhelming realization that now I was entrusted with this responsibility of a new life, a, a breathing, heart-beating, helpless infant. And it didn't take long before I realized that this beautiful, innocent child was more than just a biological wonder. She was a thinking, sensitive, tender, and responsive child. And as I have watched her grow through the years, I've been amazed at her discoveries. I can still remember when concepts such as time, space, and gravity were fresh and new to her, when stars were and are still stars to her. 
not a cosmos of scientific mysteries. Flowers and kittens and nature are still flowers and kittens and nature to her at 29. Not some genetic evolutionary dilemma. She's an artist. She's a reflection of the creator God. And I still remember when she discovered that preciousness of time and said, Daddy, I want to live forever. Do you remember the time you began to realize that people died? And you began to say, wait a minute, I don't want that. I want to live forever, and maybe I'm going to be the one that's going to discover forever. I remember the first time I experienced that longing to live forever. Fresh in my mind are the echoes of my mother's words. I never knew her dad. He died from a war-related injury when she was nine months old. And going through World War II in a Nazi concentration camp and experiencing so much, and once in a while, her pain was so strong, the darkness was so engulfing that she would say, God, why? I was only seven years old. The only picture in my mind that I have of my grandpa on my dad's side, he was smiling, loving, and somewhat passionate. I don't know what's going on with the music here, but I'm hearing music. <laughs> just, just, it's, it's nice, right? Man, it's like somebody, I, I, I'm trying to make a defense here, and somebody's making it into a, an appeal. That's awesome. I love it. I love it. I love it. This is good stuff, man. He was a somewhat of a passionate Italian man, my grandpa. I remember praying for him. But my grandpa died of cancer in 1967. I saw my daddy weep like a child. My daddy didn't weep that often, but he did that day. And I remember, as if it was yesterday, sitting in the car, tears swelled up inside, and I groaned, God! Are you alive? Are you real? Is it true? I mean, wh where are you? Why is this happening? Are you listening to me? Why aren't you answering my prayers? It didn't take long. My faith in a divine being began to drastically diminish. As a youngster, I went to a parochial school. And I remember uh, not being able to speak the language and being maltreated and mistreated by other kids being in fights after fights and feeling like, what, what kind of a place is this? There was one kid that was so nice to me. His name was Matthew. He was an eighth grader. I remember the day that I walked into school and everybody was dead silent and everybody was depressed and discouraged and I found out that Matthew had just drowned over the weekend. I remember thinking, as I considered the death of the schoolmate, there is no God. This event further deepened my conviction 
of the non-caring and probably non-existing God. In high school, I learned that fantastic theory of evolution. And I thought, well, that there is, right? That's the, that's the answer. We're just an accident. I remember thinking that. I remember actually liking thinking that. I lived in a place called New Rochelle, and in New Rochelle, there was a house. Across the street of the high school, there was the home of a famous American patriot. His name was Thomas Paine. He was an outspoken infidel. He wrote a, a book called The Age of Reason. Have you heard of it? I remember going in there, and I remember just thinking about this guy who was this famous patriot. Had such a big role in our country, and I'm thinking, okay, well, this is an intelligent man. And if he doesn't believe in God, why should I? And soon agnosticism turned into atheism. And atheism afforded me license to do whatever I wanted to do. I was accountable to no one. My life was increasingly becoming an, just, just irresponsible, immoral life. I lived it up. Hey, there's no God anyway, why? Right? And as I experimented, my life became one of unrest and hopelessness, and I will not lie to you, and darkness. Darkness began to engulf me. Perhaps some of you on the jury know what I'm talking about. You go through life, you wake up in the morning, you go to work, you get home, you drown yourself in television sitcoms, a beer, maybe a joint, and you anticipate the weekend thrill, and then Monday you start all over again. And the cycle goes on and on, and your life is a life of just temporary pleasures with no real sense of identity, no real sense of destination. You're just doing life because it doesn't matter. You don't know where you came from, and you don't know where you're going. You're living this hopeless round of meaningless events. And once in a great while, a tragedy occurs. Oh, yeah. The darkness stuff that the prosecuting attorney was talking about. And that tragedy forces us to face reality. And they only plunge us deeper and deeper into the despair, into the human rat race. That is how my life was until, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, until I met a friend, a close friend, and he began to undergo this experience. I could not understand. He was normal one day and then very abnormal the next. He was like regular one day and irregular the next. Strange even. A change came over him. Peace within that I had never experienced before. I remember his mom dying. And I was angry. She was a great woman, a fantastic cook, and an awesome, loving person. And I remember my friend Tony having this peace, saying, we will see her again, Sergio. And I'm thinking, no, we won't. But I would never say that to him. But I longed. I longed for that peace. I longed for that serenity. I longed for that confidence. I wanted so much 
to have his faith. Not some unrealistic, unreasonable presumption, but a convincing, persuasive faith that he had. But I did not. I longed for that tranquility. I longed for that peace to expel the darkness. And he shared with me a text. And this was it. In John chapter 8, verse 12, as he was sharing with me these things that I didn't even want to listen to, he shared this text with me. He says, Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. And if you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. I thought, I don't want to have to walk in darkness. Prosecuting attorney, by the way, at this point, objects. But it's my opening statement, the judge reminds him. So I can say whatever I want. And I remember reading that. For some reason, that text really, really hit me. I am the light of the world. Oh, if I could just have some light. Within a few weeks, playing soccer, I tore ligaments in my knee. And I was couch ridden. I couldn't go anywhere and just, I was bored, even of TV, believe it or not. And I found an old dusty Bible. I still have it today. Old Douay version from my Catholic mom. It's, it's gone over some stuff, as you can tell. It still has, I have some, I had to tape it some, some, so it wouldn't fall apart. Old, and I, in fact, there's nothing in here that's underlined or, or, or because I didn't feel like I could write in this book. I don't even remember what I read. I probably read, read Genesis. But all I know is that something began to happen inside of me. God had to tear the ligaments in my knees for me to listen to him. I love this Bible. That's why I've kept it. I read about a guy by the name of Bob Ingersoll. He was a famous infidel, and he was constantly trying to discredit this book, the Bible. And he got into a conspiracy with a guy by the name of Lou Wallace. He was a novelist who was also an atheist. And he, he said, look, here's what I want you to do, because you're so good at it. I want you to write a novel, an authentic novel, in every possible way, about Jesus. As if it's some lost Bible book. But I want you then to involve Jesus in a scandal. Would you do that? And Lou Wallace took on the challenge. Of course, he was a good writer, so he had to study. And he began to read the Bible so that he could get a good sense of what the literary aspects of this book was so that he could make it as real as possible. But the more he read, the more he got, began to become convinced. The more he read, the more he began to believe. And he did write, finally finish a book. And the book is entitled Ben-Hur. Have you heard of it? And he became a believer. I don't know why, but that 
that was pretty awesome to me. I heard about another book entitled The Last Words of Saints and Sinners by a guy by the name of Lockie. And in it, he catalogs the last words of people that were famous that died. And he says that most died with God on their lips. He researched the libraries of, uh, of the world. He talked about a guy by the name of Voltaire who died. Now, Voltaire was a famous infidel. In fact, he said, uh, one day he said, a hundred years from now, there will, never, there will not even be a Bible to read. That's how, that's how old and, and, and un, how irrelevant that book is. Well, he died, and the last words in his mouth was, God. A hundred years, by the way, to the day that he said those words, his printing press was bought out to print Bibles. <laughs> God's got an amazing sense of humor, doesn't he? Thomas Paine, remember Thomas Paine? These were his last words on his lips as he died. I would give worlds if I had them to retrieve every word I wrote. And he died screaming, Jesus, help me. I think when death approaches, even infidels seek God. Don't you think so? I realize that with Wallace and with these folks that I was reading about, with people that I was meeting in church, that it wasn't just some intellectual journey, that there was an experience. And I wanted that experience so badly. And I prayed, and I prayed. And I will not lie to you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. I will not lie to you. I cannot fully explain why all the dark tragedies happened. I cannot explain to you, uh, I've lost my mom and my dad. I've lost good friends, good people in my life. And there are moments when I say, God, why? But I, I've gotten to the point where I trust him. Why he chooses to interfere in some situations and not in others, I don't know. But I do know that he loves me, that he loves you. And love requires something that I'm still trying to grapple with, it's called free choice. And I think it's free choice. Somewhere in there is the reason why these things happen. There was a time when the universe was bright and illuminating. And then something happened and darkness filled the universe. Darkness was chosen by one. And ladies and gentlemen of the jury, as I conclude, and since I know that I am allowed to do this, I want to share with you one last verse. And it goes like this. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, we do not wrestle against stuff that is happening that we, don't un that, 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 that we can see and understand, but against the rulers, against the 
authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. In other words, the author of this letter is saying, look, this is more than you understand. And he says, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, this is bigger than you and I. In another, in another letter he says, spiritual things are only spiritually discerned. I began to realize this, that the, the reason why I could not understand it at first is because I was, I was living in a, in a realm of humanity, not in the realm of spirituality. I think God is waiting for each and every one of us to say, you know what, I'm one to believe, help my unbelief. I think God wants each and every one of us to be able to say, listen, I don't understand it all, but I trust you. And the moment we do that, he's going to show up in your life like he has showed up in my life. And for the next several weeks, we, the defense attorneys of this church, are going to be, spend some time trying to prove to you the experiences that unleashes darkness. And why and how on earth can people who have experienced that darkness be illuminated by Jesus Christ? We're going to talk about, we're going to actually have witnesses, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, that are going to talk about their darkness and yet how they were able to experience God even through that darkness. I believe that by the time this trial is over, those of you who say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, you will have a faith that no one can contest. You will have a strength that is rare in this world. I am convinced, and I'm looking forward for those days. We will do our best to help you understand that God is not a tyrant or the indifferent God that the prosecuting attorney has made him out to be, the cosmic killjoy. No, 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 no. No, God is good. We're going to talk about loss and depression and pain and suffering and purposelessness and anger and resentment and tragedy. We're going to talk about all those dark moments and how on earth can God be seen through all of that? And I'll finish with this. When I was a child, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I was, I was so afraid of the dark. Uh, I was so afraid that, that when I would go to sleep, I would wait until everybody was asleep. And then I would get up from my bed, and I would take my bed, and I would move it close to my brother's bed. I don't know why I thought that would have been the better way to go. And I would, I would sleep there. And my brother would wake up and he did it again, Sarah Jo. Stop it. I remember, I remember staying up at night crying and crying and crying. I actually have this memory. I don't know what it is, but I have this memory of being in a crib, standing up crying because I, I was so dark. I was so afraid of the dark. Anybody here afraid of the dark? I, I, I get it. 
remember one time my mom took us to a caverns in Abruzzo, Italy, not too far from Naples, called Cavalloni. Not cannelloni, Cavalloni. Not lasagna, Cavalloni. Caverns. And in those days, you got in and they got, it was really dark. They wanted you to see and experience what it's like to be in a cavern with no lights. And I remember going in and trembling, my mom holding my hand and my brothers all laughing. And, and I'm crying and I'm trembling. And my mom sensing, knowing my fear of the dark. I remember her saying, Sergio, it's okay. Someone knows how to turn the lights on here. And sure enough, within just a few moments, these lanterns would turn on. And we could see. Ladies and gentlemen of this jury, I know some of you are going through some dark times, but here's what I want to tell you. We're going to prove to you that someone knows how to turn on the lights. He is the light of the world.